Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Welcome back to the Andrew Lawton Show. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. It is Thursday, October 19th, and I am delighted to have you aboard the program here. I was just thinking, I saw Colby Kosh in the National Post just had a, a great piece I was reading before I went on air about Pierre Polyev's apple-munching takedown of that uh, reporter-editor from British Columbia. And I was thinking, I don't know if Scouts Canada, like every other institution, has gone woke now. I suspect they probably have. But if not, it would be great if Scouts Canada could, like, secure some great Apple Day promo with Pierre Polyev. Do they still do Apple Day? I, I did this when I was a kid, and there was a great moment where... At the end of Apple Day, when we, if you've never done it, it was where you just like stand outside grocery stores as a cub or a scout and you just give people apples and they give you some money. It was so wholesome and fun. And you like, uh, that's why like every kid who was ever in cubs has a hunchback because they had that like container with the apples just like around their neck for, you know, 19 hours or something. But there was this like great one where afterwards, my mom would always take the leftover, because my dad was a, a cub leader. My mom would take all the leftover apples and she would make this delightful apple crisp. And we were going on a camping trip uh, one particular year. And what my mom decided to do was say, oh, let's make a bunch of apple crisp and give them all to the cubs and leaders for the camp. Now, the leaders uh, were getting into the apple crisp the night before it was to be distributed. And at a certain point, they got to uh, this this. Uh, well, at a certain point, they got to the point where there was not enough to give, so they had to finish it all. And uh, there, there would have been a perfect crime had one of the leader's sons not been me, who then goes home and has the mother ask, how was the apple crisp? To which I responded, what apple crisp? And the jig was up. They uh, should have roused me from my sleep and bought my silence with some, but nope, they did not think to do that. In any case, Pierre Polyev with his apple munching takedown of that reporter would be a great spokesperson for Apple. Day. Get a little uh, cross promo there, a brand deal between the Conservative leader and Scouts Canada. Uh, one thing I want to talk about before we get too deeply into the weeds on uh, apples any further, that might actually be the end of the apple discourse, don't worry, is uh, that I know a lot of you are going to be coming out to True North Nation on Saturday in Calgary. It's sold out, so if you didn't get your ticket, you'll have to come next time. But I can't wait. And if you did get a ticket, I can't wait to see you on Saturday at what's sure to be a fantastic, fantastic event. And if you want to make sure that you learn more about future events of that nature, please head over to tnc.news and you can hit subscribe and never miss an update, which is especially important in this era of Internet regulation and censorship. Let's. Someone, my producer uh, is asking me to do more Apple talk, uh, but uh, I mean, no, we have to get to the core of the show here. We can't do that today. Uh, one of the things that I do want to talk about, though, is Pierre Polyev and Justin Trudeau in the polls. Now, as a general rule, I do not cover polling on the show. I find it to be utterly boring. You can be like, oh, well, this person's up 3% and that's up 2% and, ooh, New Market Aurora is looking like a real horse race this time around. And it's all nonsense because as we learn, polls lie. They don't tell the whole picture. And you can be very shocked on election day. But I do like to pay attention to the gestalt of polling, by which I mean, if there is an overarching trend that has been completely 
and utterly impossible to really be wrong because every single poll is saying the same thing. And that's exactly what's happening when you look at Justin Trudeau's polling numbers. He is uh, not only tremendously unpopular, his party brand is in the mud. Pierre Polyev, despite being held up as, I don't know, the new Hitler by the left, is uh, being seen as quite popular. And even those who were not exactly fans of his are getting over it as they get to know him, which is something, I mean, in past uh, politics uh, elections in Canada, when you get to know some someone, sometimes you like them even less. <laughs> that doesn't seem to be the case with Polyev here. But one of the things that I was, sorry, I was looking at my watch there because I just saw like a, a giant flash of Justin Trudeau and Narendra Modi. And I, I don't know if you can uh, see it uh, there, but I was like, there we go. I was like worried there was some giant breaking news story. But the story is that a large number of Canadian diplomats have left India amid tensions. So uh, we'll try to dig into that as the afternoon progresses. But uh, on the polling numbers, the reason I think this is so important to talk about here is that the Liberals have not really changed anything about their approach. They're not showing any contrition. They're not showing any humility. They're not doing anything to suggest they get it and are trying to change tax. So they're going to do what they do when they get desperate every single time. They're going to whip out, they're going to look up the bag of tricks. They're going to whip out everything. We're going to get assault rifles, abortion, gay marriage, social conservatives are evil, scary, uh, soldiers in the streets. They're like any crazy, insane, unhinged, deranged attack that they can find they're going to bring up, except they're against someone this time around who is a lot more capable at answering and addressing questions than his predecessors have been, which is why I, I'm not all that uh, convinced that these liberal attacks will shift. And at a certain point, the liberals are left with one fundamental reality, which is that their leader is not the guy that can deliver them to anything other than electoral humiliation. And I was uh, particularly intrigued, and I'm breaking my rule on not talking about individual polling, by this one particular poll that Angus Reid did, which showed, you know, the majority of Canadians want Justin Trudeau and the Liberals gone. So you may think, okay, whoop-de-doo, whatever, that's not surprising now. But here's what's interesting. Two out of every five past Liberal voters surveyed say Justin Trudeau should step down. Now, this is very noteworthy. 44% of people who voted Liberal in 2021 say Trudeau should stay on. 41% say he should leave the party to a fresh face. So that means they're evenly split. If you combine those two, 44 and 41, I'm not great at math, but I think you get to 104, no, you get to 85. So 15%, I guess, are, are indifferent or don't particularly care. But of those, it's a relatively even split. So there are not a huge number of liberal voters, people who voted liberal just two years ago, that think Justin Trudeau is the guy that should continue forward with the party. Now, this is something where, to go back to the old prediction I've made, that the Liberals are probably best positioned for a win if they get rid of Justin Trudeau now, find someone who can run that party in a, a very different way and go forward. And that's not an endorsement or an anti-endorsement. That is a prediction based on looking at this landscape here. Here's a guy who's dealing with fatigue. The voters no longer are excited about him. He's no longer the young, charming, debonair, sexy guy with the nice flowing hair. Maybe he is to you. But certainly politically, that's not exactly how it's playing. 
So why this is so important is that the Liberal caucus has been in lockstep behind him. There has been no dissent whatsoever beyond a couple of little peeps from, uh, well, that one guy, Joel Lightbound, during the uh, federal COVID response who spoke up and again has never really been heard from again. I think Joel Lightbound has been memory hold by the Liberals. Uh, even with cabinet shuffles, there's been nothing. There was some dissent a few years back with Jody Wilson-Raybould and uh, Jane Philpott and Selena Caesar Chavend, but even then, that was essentially it. And ever since then, what Trudeau did there is very important. He showed that he has no tolerance for dissent. When Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott spoke up, they were gone. They were out uh, before you could say blackface, and that was that. So now we have a caucus that realizes its political future depends on loyalty to the dear leader. And this is exactly why everyone in caucus is falling in line. It also means that if the liberals are to find a new leader, they're going to have a very, very difficult time distancing themselves from the Trudeau brand. Because, well, everyone has been a lieutenant. I mean, look at uh, Christia Freeland. How could Christia Freeland be a non-Trudeau alternative when she is literally the most visible member, the visible messenger and hatchet woman of the Trudeau government, apart from Trudeau himself? But Justin Trudeau is not going anywhere, as he tells it. This is one of his more recent reiterations of that at the Liberal Party's convention a couple of months back. Liberals. Canadians, in these serious times, let's continue to work hard on serious solutions. And my friends, when the election comes, when Canadians need to make a consequential choice in this consequential moment, it will be the honour of my life to lead us through it and continue building a better future. So let us fight this fight I didn't catch this the first time I saw the clip, but if you're a fan of The Office, uh, does it remind you of Dwight Schrute when he was speaking at that sales conference and he was told to like be angry and pound his fists on the table and blood alone moves the wheels of history? That was kind of what Justin Trudeau was doing there. He just starts like yelling for no apparent reason. In fact, Dwight Schrute might make a better prime minister than Justin Trudeau on a number of key files. Certainly, I think on foreign policy and diplom dip diplomacy, it would be no contest whatsoever. But uh, here we have a reality that the Liberals have to reckon with and that uh, Canadians are not happy with what they're selling. Canadians are not as scared at the alternative as the Liberals want them to be. And even Liberal voters are saying, you know, maybe, just maybe, I have some buyer's remorse. Now, there are a couple of ways to unpack that. People who voted Liberal in 2021 might be longtime Liberal voters that are just sour on Trudeau and ready for an alternative. They might also have been people that just voted liberal that one time, that weren't really dyed-in-the-wool liberals, but they thought Trudeau was a more compelling voice than Maxime Bernier or Aaron O'Toole or uh, Anime Paul or whoever else was running. Jagmeet Singh, see, I, he, less relevant than Anime Paul at, at times, but that's basically where things are headed now. So the Liberal caucus, if they're serious about remaining a party and not going back to the utter humiliation they had after the 2011 election, they should really think carefully about what their best foot forward looks like. 
when they are heading into the next election, which again, we can talk about as likely being 2025. It's entirely possible that it comes sooner than that, but we just don't know because again, that requires the NDP finding uh, somehow a backbone, which uh, it's very difficult to get a spinal transplant with healthcare waitlists being what they are. Uh, and, you know, I mean, Mel, Sean just shared a, a piece in our a little chat here. Contender to replace Trudeau faces first real test. This is uh, Melanie Jolie. The four, I didn't know Melanie Jolie was a contender to replace Trudeau. This is the woman who uh, posted yesterday on Twitter this, like, oblique, nondescript condemnation of a bombing of a hospital without actually saying who she thinks was behind it, which, as we talked about yesterday, increasingly uh, seems to be the case that Hamas was, but she was basically winking to those who want to blame Israel for this and instead of looking at the reality. So apparently she's the, she's the contender of, of this. I believe we have or soon will have that Dwight Schrute clip. So stand by, because if you haven't seen it and don't know what I'm talking about, we uh, definitely have to play that for you. But all of this is to say that Justin Trudeau right now is selling something that Canadians are not buying. And when even liberals, people in his own party, the party faithful that got him elected each time he's run, are saying, eh, it's time for a change, that's not a recipe for that party to have success. Now, the question I'll put to you, and if you're watching this on uh, Facebook or YouTube or Rumble or I don't know, wherever else we're streaming, but anywhere, uh, you can weigh in in the comments because I I'm curious, if you don't like Trudeau, which I don't think a lot of our audience does, I maybe you do, that's fine, I welcome you all, we're equal opportunity here, but if you don't like Trudeau, what would you prefer? Would you prefer you know, your person to be running against him in 2025? Or would you prefer him to just resign and be gone? Because uh, there is something to the effect that if you are taking opportunity early to replace your leader and put someone in who can rebrand, you actually may have a better shot at winning. You may have a better shot at victory. I remember in Ontario in 2018, now I know this election quite well because I was running as a candidate in it, but in 2018, what happened was Kathleen Wynne, who was the outgoing Ontario premier, uh, running for re-election, she was loathed. Like everyone hated her, despised her. Uh, she was the only. She was the answer to the question: Who could be worse than Dalton McGuinty? And that was basically the, the election. It was that everyone hated her. Everyone knew the PCs were going to win. I was optimistic and uh, they did win, but I didn't. And that's fine because, well, the next few years would have made me regret being there. But the thing about it was that Kathleen Wynne had to do this abrupt pivot during the election where she said, okay, you, you guys clearly don't want me to be the premier of Ontario. So I, I'm going to resign any, like I, you're, I'm not going to be the premier. I've already lost. Don't worry about it. But you need to vote liberal so that our party has a stronger foothill to rebuild in the future. So she basically conceded defeat and, and accepted that she was the liability and then said, okay, I've already lost, but vote for us anyway, which was like a very weird sell to try to make to voters. But that was what happened because Kathleen Wynne knew that she was the great liability. And Justin Trudeau does not accept that. And, and maybe he will at some point midway through the election. Maybe he'll uh, pop up at, you know, halfway through the writ period in 2025 and say, listen, I'm not going to be the prime minister, but vote liberal so that we can hold the evil conservatives to account. Maybe that's what he'll do. I do not think he has the humility. And that's the question that I think a lot of liberals need to be asking right now. Does Justin Trudeau want the ship to go down if he can't be the captain of it? 
I think there is a very strong argument that he does when he gets up there and says time and time again that he's the guy, that he's running ahead. When he is unrepentant, even facing poll numbers that are showing massive, massive unpopularity for him and his party, his only response is that the other guys are evil. The other guys are lying. The other guys are divisive. That's the only response he has. And when you looked at how the Liberals handled their caucus meeting in London, this is the one that I was banned from attending as a journalist, uh, the Liberal caucus meeting was going to last, I think, at one point, 30 minutes. They had scheduled 30 minutes for, you know, however many Liberal MPs there are, I forget the number, to all air their grievances while they're dealing, while they're just getting slaughtered by the Conservatives. And it ended up where the caucus meeting went longer and more people had a chance to weigh in and, and say their piece. But it was a really revealing moment. And, and I don't think a lot of liberal MPs are, are really grasping it. And, and the leaks have been very minimal from this party. And you know what? When push comes to shove, I do not believe that he is going to step down. I think the caucus needs to use its power and its authority and its autonomy to stand up and get rid of him if they don't want him leading them into the next election, because he certainly uh, does not want uh, anyone else leading his party into the next election. So uh, take from that what you will. Uh, one thing I am uh, going to share here. I do we have? I don't. Do we have the clip? I just. It's. I mentioned it, so it's just funny. This was like my, my interpretation of the. Oh no! Apparently, we're having a network issue, so maybe we don't have the uh, the clip handy. Okay, don't worry about it. You can look it up on YouTube. It's uh, Dwight Schrute. Blood alone moves the wheels of history. So. Uh, nevertheless, I want to pivot to Alberta here because yesterday we saw a rather unique standoff between the Alberta government and the federal government. Alberta has been in the process of uh, weighing in on whether to get out of Canada pension plan and have an Alberta pension plan. So what the Alberta government wants to do is basically say, uh, we think that we can invest our money better. We think it's our money to invest. We want to, as Albertans, manage this ourselves. Now, the government has not said it's going full steam ahead on this. They've said they'll have consultations, and they've also said that they want to have a referendum. They want to put it to the Albertans whose money will be invested in this. Now, this is a right the provinces have. Quebecers already have their own pension plan. A few years back, Ontarians wanted to have their own under Kathleen Wynne, and that was something that Ontario voters rather soundly rejected, uh, and the Ontario government backed off. But this is not unheard of, yet the federal government is treating it as though it is a capital case, or to pardon the pun, treat it as though it's a federal case. The federal government uh, from Justin Trudeau sent a letter to Danielle Smith yesterday saying the government will use all means necessary and available to fight this and to inform Albertans how reckless it is, which makes me wonder if they're going to like start doing the ad campaigns driving around Edmonton and Calgary that like Alberta government officials have been doing in Ottawa. But we'll ne you never know. Uh, let's discuss this in a bit of detail with Aaron Woodrick, who is the federal director for, uh, or rather, the domestic policy director for the McDonald Laurier Institute. Aaron, good to talk to you. Now, you are not an Albertan yourself, but I, I think you understand provincial autonomy very well here. I, I can understand Justin Trudeau saying, listen, we defend CPP, we back it, we don't think you should do this. But saying he's going to fight it seems a little bit odd. 
I don't know if it's that odd, Andrew. I mean, it's not, it won't be a surprise to most people that the government of Alberta and the federal government are not getting along on an issue. I mean, they come from completely different worldviews. There's a lot of acrimony, a lot of bad blood there. Um, we obviously just came off that court ruling with the No More Pipelines Act, officially called the Impact Assessment Act, where the Supreme Court, bless it for getting it right this time, basically said, look, it doesn't matter that climate change is important. The Constitution says what it says, and you don't have the power to do this. So, you know, the the, the, the Trudeau government was quite, should have been chastened on that. I'm worried they weren't as much. But this, I mean, look, I, I think that this uh, pension plan issue um, is not really about a pension plan at all. It's about Alberta asserting its authority, which, as you point out, it does have. I mean, it can do this. Uh, it has the power to do it. Uh, Quebec does it, which is, is often pointed out as an example. If Quebec can do it, why can't Alberta? I think the real question is whether it's a good idea, whether it serves Alberta well, um, and whether it, it does does really achieve anything other than to sort of have Alberta assert itself and sort of blow off steam and say, you know what, we're going to do this because we can, and we we don't trust Ottawa because of the way you act on all these other things, and so we want to take this and, and do this ourselves. I think that's that's what's really going on here is there's this is just a one front and a much bigger sort of political spat. Yeah, I think you're right about that, and I would love it if the debate were purely an economic one for Canadians and Albertans. I mean, Justin Trudeau could have in his open letter said, well, actually, here's a list of the reasons why Albertans are better served by being in CPP, and, and to its credit, the Canada Pension Plan does have very very good returns. I mean, it's a, a relatively well-managed portfolio as far as other public pension plans and, and private pension plans are concerned. And, and I think the Alberta government will have to give a stronger argument if they do want to go down this road of here's how we could do it better rather than just Alberta first, which look, I think is a compelling argument on a lot of policies. This is the one where I'm not as convinced it is. Yeah. And look, Alberta has a lot of legitimate grievances when it comes to Ottawa, right? I mean, Ottawa has treated Alberta like a cash cow. Again, there's some confusion about how that is. Things like equalization, I think the way it's structured or prejudice thinks Alberta. Albertans pay more taxes, but you know, part of the reason that is is that Albertans are just richer. Um, Alberta Albertans have the highest per capita income in Canada. So if you were you were rich in any province, you pay the same level of taxes that a rich Albertan does. So it just happens to be that because Alberta is such a prosperous place, there's more rich people. But all that said, Andrew, I think um, you know the Fed, this government in particular, the federal government, you know, they're they're actually activity and their sort of relentless attack on anything um, that they think will help fight climate change has prejudiced Alberta greatly and it harms Alberta's prosperity and Alberta's are right to say, you know, you want to have it both ways. You want to you want to benefit from our wealth and prosperity and yet all your actions are moving to harm us. And so I think the CPP is in a way, you know, Danielle Smith can make the case that, look, uh, you in Ottawa, you've you've shown that you care more about things like, you know, getting to net zero than the actual prosperity of, of, of families in this country. And so in Alberta, if we're going to take a different approach, we're going to invest in a different way. We're going to have a different focus. I think that may be the sort of uh, the frontline argument is that we're going to make different investment decisions than you are because we see, see the world in a very different way than you do. Yeah. And, and we've talked on the show in the past about a number of these campaigns. I mean, universities are particularly targeted to uh, basically remove their endowments from investments in the oil and gas sector. And we, we see huge, huge lobbying on this. And I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if the federal government were to at one point, you know, direct CPP to like only invest in companies run by, you know, disabled transgender women that are looking into alternative energies. Like, uh, but at this point that hasn't really happened yet. So I think in, in Alberta's case, like, yeah, I think they do have a different worldview here. But a lot of people just want their returns to be what, what they're after. And I, I don't know if it goes to a referendum, if that's the debate that will really be had. 
No, I agree. And if we want to talk about better ways to have investment, maybe we shouldn't be talking about these massive pooled funds to, at all. We could talk about individual, right? There are a lot of countries that have, you have a mandatory um, sort of individual uh, pension plan that you have to contribute to, but it's portable. You can choose from a bunch of different providers. So, and, and I think it's a little bit ironic, in fact, that you have a government that ostensibly is more conservative in Alberta. You would think they would be looking at more individualized options. You would look at some of these other countries, like Chile is a good example, a lot of people point to, um, where where you, you know, you are required to make uh, payments. We want, you know, I don't understand it's good public policy for governments to say we want to encourage or in some cases coerce you into saving for your future, uh, but give people more options. Then people can shop around. They can pick a, pick an investment vehicle that they're comfortable with that has the risk they like. Right now, it's sort of like CPP is all you've got. If we had an APP, well, you'd have, that's a different one, but we're still only talking about a handful of choices. So I think there's actually a more interesting discussion around how to encourage savings in a way that um, is, is tailored rather than one size fits all for Canadians. Yeah, and I think that therein lies what Alberta's approach to these things generally is, which is that when the federal government uh, bullies its way in, whether it's on a carbon tax or on, I mean, healthcare in a lot of cases or on this pension plan, it's a very one size fits all solution. And I mean, the backdrop against we're having this discussion, uh, you know, the, the Senate this week is talking about universal basic income or guaranteed basic income. Again, uh, uh, if it were to ever come to fruition, a very dangerous proposition because federal government takes this one-size-fits-all uh, approach. So do you think this helps or hurts Alberta? Because I, I think that, you know, the Alberta sort of political environment thrives off of that tension with Ottawa. And when you get a letter like this from Trudeau, I don't think it's the win he thinks it is for him. No, it isn't. But I think we're well past believing that, that Mr. Trudeau is a uniter in this country. I mean, as much as he spouts off about a division, he's happy to divide if he thinks it serves his purposes. Too often, I think, unfortunately, his tendency is to centralize. Um, this is a federal country, Andrew. It only really operates if we give different regions, uh, you know, maximum sort of leeway to do their own thing. I think that's the only way this country can work. And when you have a centralizing tendency like you do in Mr. Trudeau, um, it just it just starts to grate on people because he tries to impose a single vision on the rest of the country, especially in parts that are just completely out of sync with him. So, look, I think Albertans are within their rights to explore this. Um, I think, as I said, they've got a lot of legitimate legitimate grievances, and I think they're right to push back on things. But I would say the real question they have to ask themselves on this specifically is, will we be better off for it? Don't do this just because you want to stick it to Mr. Trudeau in Ottawa, as tempting as that may be. Don't cut off your nose, nose to spite your face. Um, you know, Look at it in detail. Look at how it would be structured. If it is something where you really think you'd be better off, by all means, pursue it. But don't just do it because of legitimate grievance. I, I think that might be a mistake. Uh, just to throw one curveball at you, which I'll only do because I, I learned about it from a, something you retweeted uh, this morning, Aaron. So I figure you probably know about it more than I sure. do. I, I understand that the government has like once again uh, kicked down the road uh, reforming access to information, which was like this big <laughs> grand promise that the Trudeau government made. They were going to make be the most open and transparent government in Canadian yeah. history. At one point, they even said cabinet ministers' offices and the PMO would be subject to ATIP, which uh, eight years later has never happened. And what do you know? They've also said again. Eh, we're, we'll we'll deal with it. We're not going to deal with this. Yeah. Well, open by default. That I believe was their specific promise. Yes, yes. It was going to be this reverse onus. It was just by default everything would be open. Look, uh, you know, on the one hand, I, I try not to be cynical. This is a government that you know, aside from their sort of policy positions, they really presented themselves as a government that was going to do things differently. The style, the 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 way they did business is going to be different. Turns out they're just like the government for them. I mean, Mr. Harper's government developed quite a reputation for being secretive, avoiding transparency. I think that was a fair character 
organization. Mm -hmm. uh, but the Trudeau government, by almost every measure, including people who are not you know, fans of the Harper government, they're even worse. The Trudeau government is more secretive, more averse to transparency. I think we all know why this is. Uh, transparency sounds great when you're in opposition because it's a tool to beat up on the government. When you get into power, the only thing transparency represents is risk. It's the risk of more problems. It's the risk of people seeing things, seeing how the sausages are made, seeing where you may have lied or embellished the truth. So that it's no surprise to me that governments don't want to do this. And in fact, that's why I think the, the perfect time to do it is this is an opportunity for all the opposition parties to get together and impose the change now, because if they do it now, they're not in government and it only affects it. But that's the only way it's going to happen, because once government's in power, Andrew, they just they just see this as a risk and a danger they'd rather avoid. Yeah, and, and but I'd be very cynical of a government that promised transparency starting whenever the next guys come in, which is, <laughs> which is I think, also part of the problem. But uh, anyway, very well said, as always, Aaron Woodrick with the McDonald Laurier Institute. Thanks for coming on, sir. Thanks a lot, Andrew. All right. Yeah, and it's tough because ATIP reform is one of these issues where I'm all for it, but I know that it, like only nine people in the world care about it, and I'm one of the nine because it's only really journalists and some activists and NGO groups that really use this. So it's more than nine, but it's ATIP is not a huge issue. If you were to go to uh, you know, Joe down the street or Joanne down the street and say, what's an A-tip? They'll say, oh, is that some like off-brand Q-tip? I like, who knows? And and I think people at, at their core don't even know how much information is available to them. You could, anyone, you don't have, need to have any standing as a journalist or an academic or anything. You can just go and file a request. You could say, I'd like to see Rosie Barton's makeup receipts or whatever like and and some stuff will be protected that one probably would not get revealed but you could go and say as our friends at rebel news did this week i want to see all of the expenses that cbc has racked up for private vehicle transport and they found out through access to information documents that uh, cbc has spent in the last few years i think it was like 119,000 on limos and executive car services for their executives that is information that any canadian would have access to if they just asked the question and paid the five dollar filing fee but the system itself is very much broken and as i was talking about last week with i forget who it was but we were talking about it at some point and some of these, uh, it was with uh, with Duff Conacher. Uh, some of these uh, reports have like years and years and years before the government will ever pony up the documents that they're supposed to be handing over in 30 days. Uh, one thing we have not done on this show in a couple of weeks is checked in with the ongoing criminal trial of Tamara Leach and Chris Barber, the organizers and most visible faces of the Freedom Convoy, which took place in Ottawa about a year and, uh, well, more than a year and a half ago now, but a year and eight months back. And uh, there was a bit of a break, and the trial was supposed to be done on October 13th, but they've added more dates. I've been told they could even end up going into December at the pace things are going. The Crown is still making its case. New witnesses were added this week, notably residents of downtown Ottawa, who testified to uh, the horrors that they had to endure as residents of downtown Ottawa, which, I, I mean, I'd be horrified living in downtown Ottawa myself, but they are not generally, but they were for those three weeks in 2022. I want to welcome into the show to talk about this, Matthew Horwood, who is a reporter with the Epic Times. Uh, Matthew, it is good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me.
Uh, your your audio is a little out of sync, so hopefully we'll be able to get that sorted out. Uh, it might be a, an issue with our system here, but let me ask you about the decision to call these residents, because I understood when the Public Order Emergency Commission happened, people who lived in Ottawa have a, a perspective to share about what they were living in. The people that were testifying this week, by my understanding, didn't really have anything to say about Tamara Leach and Chris Barber, who are the two individuals that are right now on trial. No, none of these witnesses had any direct dealings with Tamara Leach or Chris Barber. And that was the uh, question that the defense asked at the end of every testimony. And the reason that the Crown wanted to have these people testify is to demonstrate the scope and the impact of the Freedom Convoy and the impact it had on residents. But the defense has said, well, we're prepared to admit that this caused uh, disruption to downtown residents and their enjoyment of property. So there's no need to call these residents. And they also said that they would essentially be victim impact statements, which are normally done at the end of a trial and are not applicable at this point in it. So there were about, I'd say about two days in full where the Crown and Defence spent time arguing back and forth about this, which of course added further delays to it. And the judge made the point that it, at one point that if we had, if they had been allowed to testify and hear from it, then we would have already gotten through it. So it just added a lot more to the lengthy process, added a whole lot to the Crown's case, from my understanding. Yeah, and I, you know, obviously there is an important aspect of, of this, and you need to take the time if there is a discrepancy to go over it here. But we're talking about a trial that was supposed to be done almost a week ago now. Uh, is there any end in sight? Because the defense hasn't even made its case yet. Well, it's certainly getting a lengthier, and I've heard talk about it going into 2024 because of how many delays there's been, both with you know, audio troubles with delays and deliberations over housekeeping rules and adding these eight new witnesses. But I mean, it, certainly it's important to have people talk about the impact that the Freedom Convoy had on them. But as you mentioned, none of it had any relation to Tamara Leach and Chris Barber. It only had impact or relation to the actual protesters themselves. And it's nothing new that we're hearing. It's the honking, it's diesel fumes, it's people publicly urinating, it's people being harassed for not for wearing masks outside. But none of it is really, as I said, giving a lot more sway to the Crown's argument and proving the charges at hand and how they relate back to Tamara Leach and Chris Barber. Has there been in any of the trial that you've seen any real bombshell, like any any real smoking gun, so to speak, that shows Tamara and Chris did something other than what's already been reported? Because I, I haven't seen that from my end, although I haven't been in the room. Yeah, well, I think the best evidence against the two have come at the beginning of the trial when videos were shown by the Crown taken from uh, Chris Barber's TikTok and Tamara Leach's live streams. Now, there's one clip. To start off, there's many clips where Chris Barber repeatedly says, be peaceful, respect police, you know, don't act up. We want to not lose the will of the public. He says that repeatedly. But there is one video after the injunction against honking had been in place where Barber told protesters that if the police came to take them away to lay on the horn and don't let go until, you know, and, and as a way of letting the other protesters know that police action was happening. So that was a clip that resulted in the additional charge of counseling others to disobey a court order came into play, which he pled not guilty to. And for Tamara Leach, there is a video taken uh, shortly the day before she was arrested, where she tells protesters to once again, as we heard many times, hold the line and keep fighting the good fight. And the Crown is trying to make the argument that she's counseling people to disobey the court order, to disobey the police action and to come to Ottawa and protest. And the defense has made the argument, uh, the rebuttal, 
that hold the line doesn't necessarily mean come and protest. I mean, there's a clip of Brian Peckford, the former former premier of Newfoundland saying that as well. And he means it more of in a way of, you know, keep up, like hold t- true to your values, keep standing up for what you believe in. So it doesn't necessarily act as a smoking gun, but I, I would say those two clips would be the best pieces of evidence that the Crown has shown thus far uh, to prove the charges at hand. Yeah, the hold the line thing is interesting because there, there were no doubt uh, in Ottawa people that viewed hold the line as being a very literal call. I remember on that last weekend, I was in Ottawa when the police were moving in and you had some people that were literally saying, we've got to hold this line. And they were referring to a very specific line on the snow. And they somehow thought that if they shoveled the snow into like piles, that would you know hold the police horses and battering rams and all of that back. And it lasted, I think, like five seconds. And But then there were other people where it was like you just mentioned, Matthew, it was like more of a rallying cry, a spiritual cry. I mean, even that video when Tamara was arrested uh, and she says, hold the line, like what actually happened was one of her supporters who was filming it said, hold the line. And she just like kind of flippantly shouted it back at him. It wasn't like this call to do anything. And, And I think that that's where, I mean, the case really seems to be about trying to understand someone's state of mind, which is always a tricky thing to do. Exactly. I mean, hold the line can mean many different things to many different people. Uh, we did see clips during the trial of protesters yelling that line, repeatedly saying that as they were being moved out by police officers. So, I mean, there's a debate about what exactly it can mean. But, yeah, I think um, we're just going to have to wait and see uh, what, what the judge says. I mean, Justice uh, Perkins McVoy has been very fair. She's I've seen criticized the uh, Crown lawyers more often than the defense lawyers and she's been but she's been very fair so far so we'll have to see uh, what her verdict is but we're a long way from getting there <laughs> uh, do we know yet and i obviously the defense doesn't have to pony up its case until it's time to do so but has there been any indication from the defense at how they're going to handle things once the the crown's done and it shifts to them there hasn't been a lot of indication thus far they've mostly been poking holes in the arguments of some of the uh people testifying in the Ottawa witnesses. One of them was Zexy Lee, as I'm sure you remember, she mm-hmm. uh, was the lead plaintiff of the injunction against honking and she testified at the Public Order Emergency Commission and lawyer Lawrence Greenspawn kind of- Now this said, is just for people to know, this is Tamara Leach's lawyer, Lawrence. Right, right. And, and he was saying that she was sort of contradicting earlier testimony she had at the Public Order Emergency Commission and that what she was saying wasn't fully accurate. And she also, he also mentioned uh, a clip where she's seen uh, swearing at these people and, and being very, uh, you know, a little bit angry at them as, as is understandable. But uh, so far it's just been methodically picking apart those arguments and we haven't seen a real indication of what exactly their response is going to be once they get to that point. Matthew Horwood with the Epic Times in Ottawa. Good to talk to you, Matthew. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate it. Yeah, so this is look. I, I'm going to continue to follow what's going on there, and I, to be to be honest, I'm glad. At the beginning, there was a, a bit of a discussion that I had internally, which is like oh, these are always the most dangerous discussions I have, in which I wondered whether it was worth going up for the three weeks, and you know, should I should I go to Ottawa and cover this? And at at a certain point, I realized that look, I need to do the show, so we'll we'll keep 
people apprised and we'll have interviews with folks that are involved. And of course, after it's all done, we'll happily have uh, lawyers on and have Lawrence uh, Greenspan on and Tamara Leach and Chris Barber, all of it. But I'm glad I didn't commit to it because had I like decided to move to Ottawa for those three weeks, then I learned it's actually going to become like a three year long uh, relocation to Ottawa to cover this trial. I would have been been very upset. I would have felt a little bit hoodwinked by the justice system, which I guess wouldn't be the first time. But uh, with that aside, we will bid you adieu for today. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show on True North. And uh, let me just say we are user supported. We do not get uh, these big, giant fat checks from the government. We don't get the one point three billion dollar CBC subsidy. We're not part of the media bailout. We exist because you like us and want us to keep existing. So if you value what we do, and uh, I would say independent media in general, please show that at donate.tnc.news. And to some of you, I will see you in Calgary on the weekend. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.